This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. Well, I think it's really important that uh, fathers spend time with daughters and that they get a chance to just enjoy life and to celebrate things. And so uh, I had the chance to take my oldest daughter uh, to a special place uh, to help her to learn about how the world works. We went to Tire Kingdom because you need to learn how to get tires for your vehicle, right? Don't you? Now we'll go out and have a coffee here and there, but this was a trip to Tire Kingdom to get some tires because her tires were getting low on tread. And you know, you've driven around in your car, you know that there's some, some symptoms that can indicate that your car is out of alignment, right? Maybe your tires squeak a little bit, maybe it's, it should pull to the right just a little bit, but if it pulls too hard to the right or pulls too much to the left, it could be out of alignment, your, your wheels uh, could be squeaking, you have noisy steering. And these all can indicate that your car is out of alignment. Now, thankfully for us, it was just a couple of tires. We didn't have to do an alignment. But that can be something that will create more wear and tear on your tires. If your car is not in the proper alignment, it can create cupping, which is something that the guy described to me at the place. And So we, I wanted her to go with me and just have that whole experience of waiting in line. We had an appointment, and it was a good place to go. I recommend... Uh, no, sorry, this is Discount Tire. We go to it over by, over by Costco. She had a great time with her dad. But so how do you tell if your life is out of alignment? Right? You can't just look down under the hood and go, oh, my life is out of alignment. But usually what happens is there are some symptoms that are occurring in your life that can indicate that your life is out of alignment. Are you, are you increasingly sad? Are you increasingly angry? Do you feel a greater sense of frustration about the direction that the world is taking? Are you feeling more isolated or alone or maybe even hopeless? Is it possible that you need a realignment? And that's the effort that we're undertaking as we study 1 Corinthians is to, uh, to recalibrate our lives with the Word of God. And an alignment fits into that category. I'm, I'm kind of running out of illustrations here about how we can do alignment. Did the scale last week? doing tires, I'll come up with another one. But that's the whole idea, is that how do we uh, align ourselves with God's Word? And, and one of the things that can help us understand that we may be out of alignment in some ways are those, those feelings that we have. Uh, feelings are real, but they're not reliable. They're often indicators to us of that there may, some, there may be some way that we're experiencing disalignment, if that's a word. So we go back to God's Word to, to frame our understanding of who we are, of who God is, so that way we can bring ourselves back into alignment with God's purposes for our lives. That doesn't mean that we're not going to have those feelings or those moments of discouragement or doubt or fear or disappointment because we have to navigate this life in a broken world. Uh, there's violence and there's injustice and there's discouragement. Those things are going to be ever-present until we go to glory. But there are opportunities for us to learn and grow and to understand what is God calling me to do and to be uh, in this life. And that's why we're studying First, uh, first Corinthians. Now, this is a long chapter. We're looking at all of chapter 3 this morning, so I'm not going to read it in advance and then go through it again. I'm just going to read it as we go along. But I would invite you, if you have a Bible, 
uh, to open it up to 1 Corinthians 3. If you didn't happen to bring one, guess what? We put them right there in the pew in front of you. So you can open it up. And my wife is a teacher, right? And she's been encouraging me to remind you to open up your Bible and to look at the words as we go through them because that helps you to learn what the Scriptures are saying. As much as it's great for you to look at me when we're reading through these, it's better for you to look at the words printed on the page and you can absorb those. And if you read a different passage, that's fine too. But to, just to look at the words as they go along. And so we are looking at some of the ways that Paul describes the church in 1 Corinthians 13. He says the church has many facets. So before we begin, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray, ask God's blessing on this message. Lord, we just thank you for this time and this opportunity to hear from your word. We know, Lord, that this is the true account of one follower's message to a church that he loved, a church that he had established and planted. And he loved these people in spite of their, their brokenness and their bad theology and their uh, crazy way of living. So he sent this letter to them to remind them of the love that he had for them, that God had for them, and to also instruct them in the way of life. They, their lives could be recalibrated, realigned with the Word of God. So I pray that as we explore this passage, as we listen in on this conversation between Paul and his brothers and sisters in Corinth, that, that you would make it real to us. You would bring us into alignment, not just by learning something, but also responding to what you're teaching and so we can apply it to be more like Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, some years ago, I wanted to, uh, I, I met this great gal, and I wanted to ask her to marry me. And so I knew that the, the custom in America is to buy a diamond. I didn't know a whole lot about uh, diamonds, but boy, when you start uh, looking at diamonds, you have to learn a little bit more. There's the five C's. Does anybody know what the five C's are? You have carrot, C-A-R-A-T, color, clarity, cut, and cost. And the first four of those really dramatically affect the last one of those, right? So uh, the carrot tells you how, how large the diamond is. The color tells you if it's a white diamond or a yellow diamond or if it's blue or some you know, variation on those. Clarity reveals are there any imperfections or how many imperfections are there within, within the diamond. The cut determines what style that the gemologist has used to, to cut the diamond. So there's round, there's princess, there's emerald. It reveals the shape. And a, a valuable diamond is masterfully cut to reveal the beauty. When they're cut really well, the many different facets of that diamond, as it turns, can reflect light and make it sparkle. And so if there's lots of different facets, then you can see all the different kinds of sparkle in that diamond. That's what makes it brilliant and, and shine. That all contributes to the beauty of the gem. Well, in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul shares with us three different facets of the church. Three different facets. And if you have the sermon notes on the back, they're all listed there for you. He reveals these to us. And it, they, they all lead to something that builds God's kingdom in them and in the community. So the first facet that is revealed in 1 Corinthians 3 is that the church is a family and the goal is maturity. The church is a family and the goal is maturity. I'll read to you 1 Corinthians 3 verses 1 through 4. But I, brothers and sisters, could not address you as a spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, 
I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not of the, f- you are not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? The church is a family, and the goal is maturity. Okay, so he addresses them in these familial terms. He uses the word adelphos, which uh, literally translated as brothers. But we know in this language that when he says adelphos, he means plural. So he's writing to the brothers and to the sisters, all of the, the people of the church. And this is family. Later in the in the in First Corinthians, he talks to them about he's their spiritual father. So these familial terms that he uses, there's there's a sense of connection, of community, of a of a loving relationship that's there. And and like a father does, he wants to guide them into maturity. He's wanting them to grow up as followers of Jesus. Loving fathers provide encouragement. They provide love. They provide instruction. They also provide discipline. They they share the truth about the world and how they can guide them. And that's why Paul is writing them this letter. He's saying, hey, there's there's some great things that God is doing in your midst. I'm so thankful for you and your growth and maturity. But I also recognize that there's some issues that you face. So I want to address those with you. Uh, Last week I talked about how Paul shares two different kinds of people. He says the natural person. The natural person is someone who is not a believer yet. And then the spiritual person. If you remember at the end of the sermon, he talked about someone who has the mind of Christ. That we're looking at the world with the lens of Jesus. That's the, that's the spiritual person. Well, now he takes spiritual person. He's leaving off the natural person over here for now. He's talking about the spiritual person. And he creates two more categories. He describes the immature, those who are infants in Christ, and those who are now ready for solid food. And he uses the image of food to show how it is a person grows. Right, so we know that when babies, that when they're born, they need, they need milk. And they need a lot of nutrients and they're growing quickly. But their digestive systems are not ready to have solid food. Right? They can't eat that kind of food. They can't swallow it. They can't digest it. And so parents need to feed them and to teach them how they are to eat on their own. So you remember you know, the joy and the challenge of feeding a child for the first time, right? You start, we started off with these little uh, puffs. They're maybe like Cheerios, but they were dissolved and, and they're sitting in the seat because it was all you know, spoon-fed. And then you, they get to the point where you can reach out with a little fingers kind of doing this and grab that thing out on the tray and then like, you know, put it over here, right? Or, you know, finally it comes, finally, you know, it gets in the mouth. Right? But it's a process, isn't it? It's not something that they just intuitively um, pick up. So, so moms and dads, grandparents, uncles, whoever is, are helping, this is how you do it. Right? And then we move to maybe some peas or some avocado. Some gets in the mouth. Some gets in the hair. Uh, we had one child who's really tall now. He loved to just drop it off the side. Just drop it. And just look, hey, hey, what are you going to do now? There's my avocado down here, man. That was last week. <clears throat> no, but see, but now all my kids, for the most part, can eat on their own. And, uh, but wouldn't it be weird, like, if, if you never really learned how to do it? Right, like this morning, I got my oatmeal, and it's got blueberries in it, and Brandy's like, okay, Matt. Yeah. That'd be pretty awkward, wouldn't it? 
at the chili cook-off. There's Brandy and Matt. Oh. No, it's you need to learn how to grow and mature, and you move from one kind of food to another kind of food. And it's not good in the church when people don't grow up, when they get stuck in the same place where they've always been. Right? Paul is, is saying this as a loving father. He's saying, I want to encourage you. I want you to grow. Okay? He says, you're not ready, he says to some of them. Now, I don't know who in here is the one who's not ready. But is it possible that some of us have not matured in our faith? Are we still in the same place where we were last year? Or 10 years ago? Or 50 years ago? Are you in the same place in your growth in Christ that you were last year? Okay, is Paul saying to you, you're not ready? He's not saying you're not ready to grow because it's a natural progression for all of us if we have the Spirit of God, if we have the mind of Christ to grow in faith, <clears throat> to mature. <clears throat> and we have every resource needed, every resource necessary for that growth. We have the Word of God. We have a community. We have opportunities to grow. Are you taking advantage of those ways to grow? We have prayer. Are you taking advantage of those things? And here he, he gives the reason that he thinks that some of the people in the community are immature. Okay, if you look at verse 3, he says, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For one says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Are you not merely being human? So there's, there's conflict in the church. And he's going to get later on more in depth into what the conflict is. But he's saying there's jealousy and there's strife. See, the Corinthians are focusing on following people and not following Jesus. He says, uh, Paul or Cephas or Apollos later in the text. It's like saying, hey, I, I'm, I follow John Calvin. We had a great Presbyterian meeting at uh, Faith Press Germantown. Uh, which Kelly and I were kind of chuckling about it because we, were used to, we used to drive to Chattanooga to go to Presbyterian meetings. And I would say, wouldn't it be great if we went to a Presbyterian meeting at Faith Press Germantown? And Kelly walked from her house to the Presbyterian meeting. And one of the questions when people get uh, um, examined is, who's your favorite Reformed theolo theologian? And it's kind of like, you know how... Um, on Wheel of Fortune, you know, everyone always guessed R-S-T-L-N-E, right? Everybody says John Calvin. Everyone says, so it's kind of like, who's your favorite Reformed theologian? But you can't say John Calvin because everybody says that. You got to pick a different one because on the Wheel of Fortune, they give you those five letters and say you have to guess a different set of letters. So I'm always interested in hearing, is someone going to say Martin Luther or Melanchthon or somebody else, right? Well, here's the thing. Sometimes people can say, I'm following this person. I follow Matt Chandler. I like Billy Graham. I like Beth Moore. I like Jen Hatmaker. And if you've never heard of those people, don't worry about it. Some of them are not worth hearing about. That's fine. And we can value the teaching of all these people, all these leaders in the church. We're thankful for the, the gift of, of people who show us what the Word of God says from their vantage point. We're grateful for that. But we shouldn't allow that to divide us into camps. I'm only for this person. I had a great uh, a guy, a pastor in the church uh, in, in Florida where we served, and he would say, um, don't let your Reformed theology get in your way of loving Jesus. And as Presbyterians, we have a Reformed theology. If you want to learn more about what that means, read the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's a great document we use in our training. But let's not let that be so important to us that we lose sight of who Jesus is. 
Because any person's teaching, whether it's John Calvin or Jen Hatmaker or anybody else, we need to see, does their teaching, what they're saying about who Jesus is and what the kingdom looks like, does it line up with what the Bible says? Allow them to challenge us, but then also put it back on the Word of God. And here's the thing. We need to have room for disagreement. The people in the church in Corinth were struggling because they were following this person or that person. It was leading to strife and jealousy in their community. And what Paul is saying is that don't let these, um, these earthly teachers divide the body of Christ because you're family. And so here's a question for you. How do you apply this in your own life? Are there other brothers and sisters in Christ, people who claim Christ, that have very different views than you do on all manner of things? It could be politics. It could be how the government should be run. It should be whether we tax a lot or tax a little. Whatever it is, there's lots of different ways that we can apply the Word of God in life. But do you have relationships with people with whom you disagree in such a way that you can engage with them in conversation to hear from their point of view their experience? without calling them stupid, insane, or evil. <laughs> because the tendency for us to just kind of get in our own pocket of people and go, well, they're evil. We get to this, we, pro we progress. Uh, they're just dumb for thinking that. How can you think that? Well, they're just, you know, insane probably. Oh, no, they're actually evil. Meanwhile, they're saying, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. Well, part of our problem is that we can get separated. We're not focusing on Jesus and we're not willing to hear from another person's vantage point. And that's the value of being in relationship with different kinds of people. People with different viewpoints. Some of us need to be able to do that more effectively. And that means potentially even uh, intentionally interacting with people with whom you disagree. Finding a person who has a different political party and saying, hey, let's have lunch. Help me understand how you come to these conclusions. A person of a different race person of a different viewpoint. Say, let's just talk about these things, because help me understand. And that's a positive thing. That brings unity to the body of Christ. It doesn't mean you have to agree with everybody. It's okay. So Paul says the church is a family, and we're trying to grow in maturity. The second thing that he says is the church is a field, and the goal is quantity. Look with me at uh, verse 5 through the beginning of verse 9. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither who, he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. Right, so Paul is there telling us, that, look, you can appreciate each person in their ministry, but it's really God who brings the growth in a person's life. There are many different kinds of people that serve the Lord, but God is the one who brings the growth. Twice in this section, he says, God brings the growth. This shows us that everything that we do should be looked at as the lens, through the lens of the kingdom. Right, the person who has a ministry of mercy, who is behind the scenes who cares and shows kindness and love is just as important, if not more important, than the person who stands up at a microphone and shares the teaching of the Word of God. There, there is no difference between the ministry and the proclamation of the gospel in the Word from the pulpit and the ministry of the proclamation of the gospel through kindness and love and caring. 
that every person who's hearing this message has a ministry that God has given to them and there is no one that is more important. This is the call that God has given to me, but God has given a call to you. He's given you a ministry and it's vitally important in the kingdom of God to care, to come alongside. Some of you are, are great at administration, to come alongside and help to organize things. Others are good at just serving, picking up a hammer, organizing, just taking care. Others are great at listening and caring. Others are generous. We should all be generous, but others have the gift of making money somehow, and then they can serve the ministries of the church. We're all called to use every gift that we have. Some are great at playing an organ. Some are great at singing. Some are not. But we all have a ministry. And we all have an issue. So here's the question. Are you using the gifts that God has given to you to serve Him, to bless others? Right, we're called to different roles within the church, but each of them are important. And each will receive His wages according to His labor, He says. That means that every one of us is called to be part of this enterprise. Uh, the Lord gives us the joy of being part of this team to, to share the good news with the world. And the way that you do it and the way that I do it may be different, but we're all called to do that. And that's something that I've emphasized a lot, is what's the ministry that God has given to you? It's going to be different than everybody else in the room. But what's the ministry to which He's called you? Are you saying, yes, Lord, I'm willing to enter into ministry on your behalf, in my workplace, where I live, where I coach, where I play, in my school? Are you engaging in that? Have you ever stretched yourself? Have you ever said, okay, God, you are calling me to, to bear witness to the good news of Jesus Christ with someone in my life. And I'm going to tell someone about Jesus this week. Let me ask you, is there anybody in your life right now that doesn't know Christ? Do you have any friends who are not Christians? Anyone? Does anybody have a friend who's not a Christian? Good. If you, if you didn't raise your hand, you need to find some. <laughs> find some. There's plenty of places to go around town to find them. And, and do what you do with, what's your hobby? What, what's the fun thing that you like to do that's out in the culture, out in the world? Like, you know, like to play racquetball? Do you like to lift weights? Do you like to sew or knit or garden or what, fly planes? Whatever it is. Somewhere around there is going to be someone who doesn't know Jesus. And what would it look like if you, as you were just going along, doing the thing that you already like doing, that you were open and saying, Lord, is this person ready to hear something about who you are? Are they ready to hear the peace of Christ? Because here's the thing. If you're willing to love someone, to get to know their story, to gain a voice with them, and to offer them the peace of God, and they say no, they reject your message of peace, you know what happens with that peace? It comes back on you. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting God. And here's the thing. You never know if that person is ready Maybe they're going through something difficult. Maybe they're at a moment in their life where they just don't know what to do. And your care and your concern and your prayer is just the thing that they need. Do we believe that God is sovereign? Say yes, somebody. Yes, somebody. We do. And so we need to be bold. We need to be bold. And what, what looks like bold for me is not going to look like what bold for you. Bold for you is different. But let's be bold. And to tell people the great story of Jesus. It's all of our jobs. Everyone has a role in this thing. And yours is different. But take hold of that ministry and engage in it. And finally, the church is a temple and the goal is quality. Okay, this is a longer part of the passage. 9b. He says, we are God's building. 
According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Notice that the day, in many translations, is capitalized. The day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas in the world, or life, or death, or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God. Now remember that Paul, and our, our, our deal here, our, our point here is that God's, uh, the church is a temple, our facet, the church is a temple, and the goal is quality. Paul helped to establish this church in Corinth. Um, and if you, know, if you remember the story, he was going one direction, and he got a vision, and he went another direction. Right, that's us, right? When we're, we're going along saying, Lord, we want to be faithful to you. Maybe God leads us in one way to talk to a different person. He helped to establish this church. And, and when you build something, right? When you build a building, you have to lay a foundation. Right? You have to lay a foundation. And notice that, that, that Paul did not build a building when he was in Corinth. But he built a foundation of a church because the church is not a building. Okay, the church is the people who get in here. Do you know the church is going to leave the building shortly? And then there's a, there's a building that's left here. We, ha we always say that, but we have to be reminded that the church is the people. Paul didn't build a building, but he laid a strong foundation. Everything rests on what? What is the foundation unto which God, Paul created this church, established this church? It was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and the men and women who come after him are, the, are building on that foundation. He says, let each one take care how he builds it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Okay, so let each one take care how he builds it, right? The church has established the foundation of Jesus Christ, which is the gospel message. That sinners need redemption and salvation. And that we operate after receiving that salvation out of a life of joy because of what God has done for us. Everything we do is a response to what God has done. We don't operate out of guilt or out of obligation. We operate out of joy and delight because of what God has done for us. And that means then each of us need to be careful about how we build on this foundation. The foundation is Christ and his, Him crucified. And listen to what Paul says. He gives us two different kinds of materials on which to build. Verse 12. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw... Okay, can you think about the differences between those two kinds of materials, right? Uh, gold, silver, and precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw. 
Verse 13 continues, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day, capital D, will disclose it, because it's revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. The day means the day of the Lord. When Jesus returns, the consummation of history, that day will reveal if any person has built on the foundation that Paul has laid with precious stones, gold, and silver, those things that withstand the fire or things that do not, wood, hay, and straw. The point that he's making is that some things you can build on may look nice and they're easy to construct, but they just don't last. Now the good news is, is if we've been mistakenly building with wood, straw, and hay, we're still going to be saved and in the kingdom. It's just that the things that we've been building and working on are not going to last. But we want to be building with things that last. So what does that look like? You know, I had a, I've read a lot of books in recent years. Um, by the way, I just completed my last class for my doctorate. And the last assignment for the last class was to hand in a reading report saying that I had read all of the pages for the, the, the doctorate. So but since July 2018 and January 20th of this year, I read uh, 16,000 pages. A lot of pages. Now all I have to do is write a 150-page paper and I'll be done. <laughs> Senioritis, anybody, okay? But that's the task for this year. But I read a lot of books, and I read a lot of books. And I, you know, I love reading. And one of the books, it wasn't assigned for uh, any of the doctoral classes, but it's one that really has moved me a lot. And uh, it's called The Three Little Pigs by Walt Disney. It's a tale, as you know, of the three little pigs who go out to seek their fortune. And one built his house uh, with straw and the other with sticks. And they go, they, once they built their house, they go on their merry way doing jigs and playing their instruments. Now, why don't we, why don't, we should be doing more jigs in life today, I think. I think it would be a great demonstration of the joy that we have. But the older brother was a sober little pig. And so he built his house with bricks. But then as you know in the story, what happens? The wolf comes to the door and he huffs and he puffs and he blows their house in. It's taking me back to reading time at home last week. Um, and so he blows their house in, right? Why? Because they built with straw and hay or sticks and, and straw and they're not worthy. They don't last. And so the other two little pigs, they run to the brother's house and the wolf comes in at the door but he blows and he, blows, he huffs and he puffs and he can't blow the house in. Then he tries to go down the chimney and he gets burned and he escapes. But I think in the original version they probably ate him or something like that. But the point is, what are you building your house on? What are you engaging in with your life? Are you engaging in your life with those things that are not going to last? Like God has given us material resources to buy the things we need to provide for our families, to clothe ourselves, to eat, to experience life. But are you only pursuing the material possessions of this life? Or are you pursuing the material possessions of this life with success, reputation, purpose, the nest egg, the wealth, the legacy, in such a way that it's not going to last? Have you been focusing your life in this last week or this last year? Have you been putting more time and effort into building your kingdom than to building God's kingdom? Are you being generous with your time to those who need to be exposed to the gospel? Are you being generous with the gifts that God has given to you? Are you being generous with your resources to, to support the work of the kingdom wherever it is, all over our city, all over our world, and through the ministry of this church? 
Because if you're building up your own reputation and if your own castle, your own independence, your own safety net, it's not going to last. It may barely last you for the rest of your life, but what's the legacy in that? And this is not about building a legacy for us. It's about building a legacy for Jesus. Are we using the things that God has given us to glorify and honor Him? You see, we're called to build on the foundation that Jesus has laid. Our lives should be built on the gospel. See, this is the idea that Jesus provides every single thing that we ultimately need. We don't need more of the stuff of this world. We, need, we don't need more wonderful experiences. We don't need more of that. We need more of Jesus. And we need more of His ministry to use our resources, our time, our talent, treasure to show forth this kingdom. Because that will last. And that will impact the lives of the people who are around us. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't work hard at your job. We have a Protestant work ethic to do your job for the glory of God. But to not look to your job for your identity. To not look to your job for, for the provision. Because many of us know, anyone who's experienced financial ruin recognizes that, man, you're working really hard, and if you lost it all, what do you have? But if you have Jesus, and you use your resources to be generous, and to care, and to love, and to serve, then it doesn't matter whether or not you have income. Because you can provide. Because God will provide for you. It doesn't mean that we don't do the best that we can do. But those who are only building up their own castle are like the people building the Tower of Babel who wanted to make a name for themselves. And that's a temptation for all of us to, to pursue the American dream. Paul goes on in verse 14. He says, If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a, a reward. If anyone's work is built, burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. This is not about like losing your salvation if you don't be about God's business. But don't you want to build something that is eternal? Through the making of disciples and the loving of people. Is what you have been working on going to last? Verse 16, he goes on, Do you not know that you're God's temple and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for he is, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Paul is driving home the point that the church is God's temple and the goal is quality. I mean, think about how the Corinthians would, would hear these verses when he's talking about the temple, right? They lived in Corinth, and at the biggest, highest point in Corinth was a temple to Aphrodite. And it was constructed in the 5th century B.C. So their whole lives, if they had lived in this community, their whole lives lived in the shadow of a goddess who was associated with love, lust, beauty, pleasure, passion, and procreation. And that somehow worshiping this goddess or participating in the worship of this goddess would bring them life and significance. She was also worshipped as a warrior and she was also the patron goddess of prostitutes. And people would come from all over to worship. It was a financial center. It was a sexual center. But Paul says to them, listen, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. It's an amazing thing for them to hear. As they look up every day, they go to work, they go about their business, they're doing what they're doing, and there's the temple of Aphrodite right there. And their family members and their friends and their community, have, and maybe even them, have participated in the, in the cult worship at the temple. And now God has claimed them, and He's called them by grace through the person of Jesus Christ, to be a temple. 
Later in chapter 6, he says, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's an astounding claim. Because it means that we're not only called to, to build our lives around things that last, not material possessions, not status, not money, not education, but our very bodies belong also to God. So we're not to use our bodies for self-fulfillment. We're not to gratify ourselves. But we present ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Verse 18 says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is with God. The world is telling us through media, culture, Instagram, TikTok, that the way you find life is to express yourself sexually. That you are your sexuality. That the best thing that you can do is to be your authentic self. Find your truth and live into that truth because that's the path of life. That's what Aphrodite was saying thousands of years ago. But Paul is saying Christ had a physical body. He laid down his life. He gave himself up. He resisted temptation in the fullest sense in a way that we could never resist. He lived as a single man and yet he lived the most full life anyone could have ever lived. That's the way that we want to live. That we can't find ultimate gratification in the things of this world or in our sexuality because we are the temple of God. You're not the sum of your possessions. You're a member of God's family. You're a part of this field and you are God's temple. Just the end of the verse. We're almost done here. For all things are yours. Verse, end of 21. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. Twice, he says, all these things are yours. And what he's saying to them is not, he's not saying, hey, no to material possessions, no to enjoying sex. He's saying, yes in Christ. But that we need to live our lives in both of these areas under the Lordship of Christ because we have been made part of his family, part of his field, part of his temple. Because of what Jesus has done for us, then we live our lives in light of what Christ has given to us. Everything is ours. Joy, passion, hope, beauty, wonder is all given to us in Christ. Your life is found in Christ, not in the things of the world. Not in money or possessions or your career, success. Not in your failure, not in your sexuality, none of those things. Your value and your significance comes from Jesus because he laid his life down for you. See, the temple of Aphrodite lays in ruins along with the lives of those who worshipped her. In our culture today, those who worship wealth, success, sexual expression, and the things that they bring, their lives will eventually lead to ruin. But Jesus offers all of us no matter our temptation with the world, another way. So how do you apply this message today? How do you apply this in your life? Because it'd be great to hear a sermon and go, oh, I like that. I learned something about Aphrodite. And I left. Fine. But that's not enough. We want to be transformed by the Word of God to bring our lives into realignment so that, that the emotions that we feel and the sadness and the difficulty are in line with the Gospel so that our lives are like that beautiful diamond Right? We, 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 like a gemologist, we cut something out of our life 
that is hiding a beautiful facet of the kingdom. Because you know when you turn that diamond and you, you think, oh the diamond is sparkling. It's actually reflecting light into your eye. And it just as you turn it, the facets are all so narrow that it's a lot of little sparkles. But it's reflecting light. And so in the same way, when we cut something out of our life that isn't healthy, we're like a gemologist saying, in light of what God has said to me through his word, I'm going to cut this thing out of my life. This pursuit of the American dream that's leading me to be stressed out and anxious about my retirement. I'm going to say, Lord, I trust you with my provision. I trust that you're going to provide for me. And so now I can live a generous life. We've just cut something out and we've created another way that we're reflecting the glory of God. There's another sparkle that happens in our life when we say, Lord, I'm going to release this thing to you. This stress that I feel about my budget, I'm going to trust you with this because I know you're going to provide. I'm going to give generously instead of being worried about it. That's cutting something out. Now, gemologists typically don't add things. But what does it look like for you to add something in your life? I'm going to add a, a season of reflection and study and prayer. I'm going to meditate on the Word of God every single day. I'm going to take up 1 Corinthians. I'm going to read it through. I'm going to read, okay, we read chapter 3. I'm going to read chapter 3 three times. Or today is January uh, 29th. I'm going to read Proverbs 29 to gain some wisdom. I'm going to add the Word. I'm going to add prayer. I'm going to add service. There's someone in my community that needs help. And I've always just resisted. God's been telling me to do something, but I just never did it. I'm going to go and care for that person. I'm going to bring them some food. I'm going to love them or listen to what's going on. What do you take away and what do you add? Don't do a million things. If you do a million things, you'll never do any of them. Just pick one. What's the one thing God's telling you to do in light of what he's done? To reveal to you that you're part of his family. That you're part of his field. You now are a temple. Let's respond in obedience to his word. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.